we are in the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, turn your Bibles there, Matthew chapter 5. We're going to actually move into 6 today, but I want us to back up because we didn't finish something a couple of weeks ago, beginning with verse 33. I want to look at it very briefly before we look at chapter 6. And I don't know if you have your old notes from two weeks ago, but just in case, we didn't cover that. And do and uh, yeah, there we go. And uh, you'll see that we were talking about integrity. And we were talking about the integrity of our sexual relationships uh, in the way that we deal with other women, the way we deal with our own wives. And uh, we did not get to our integrity in verbal matters. And we want to make the point that uh, your integrity in verbal matters is sacred. And let's talk about that for a few moments. I mean, Jesus brought it up uh, in illustrating how our righteousness is to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. He specifically points to how we talk, how we make and keep promises or don't make and keep promises. So let's take a look at it because I think it definitely applies in our own day. Uh, when we look at the way that people spend things uh, to deceive other people, they'll take something that actually happened, but they'll slightly distort it or sometimes uh, not slightly. Uh, they will distort it in a major way. Truthfulness is extremely important. Those of you in, well, in any of the professions, uh, but in business in particular, haven't we seen how business just collapses when people can't trust the word of another person? Our whole system is built on trust. If you want to look at a system that's, that's built on uh, distrust, all you have to look at, too, is a very authoritarian regime that, that motivates its people and disciplines its people by fear and torture. And that's what happens when you can't trust people. So the freedoms that we enjoy are dependent upon truth-telling, being able to depend upon the word that another person speaks to you. And we're, we're losing it uh, in our own day, and not just with uh, people in Washington. Uh, it's ourselves and our daily business, and whether we speak the truth and stand up to what we say. Uh, but let's look at verse 33. This is chapter 5. Again, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, <clears throat> either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. We want to look at two things here. First of all, in verse 33, the old way is qualified. Again, you've heard that it was uh, said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Now, what we mean by qualified is, well, what I said to you, I'll stick to if the oath was appropriately grave and serious. Oh, I just swore by, I just swore by the temple. I didn't swear by the, the gold in the temple. Or I just swore by... Zion's Hill. I didn't swear by God's name. And people had this intricate casuistry of what they swore by and as to whether what they swore by bound them to the oath that they were going to give. That's the way it was among the rabbis. And the rabbis, rabbis had long explanations about what kind of swearing, or what you swore to would bind you to do this, that, and the other. And Jesus is just cutting through all that stuff. And he's saying the new way, B, verses 43 through 37, uh, is comprehensive. The new way is comprehensive. Now he says here, Jesus does, uh, do not take an oath at all. 
Uh, now, some have taken this to mean that we should never uh, swear in court. Uh, we should never take an oath or a promise. That would, of course, would also eliminate uh, the type of oaths even that you would take in, in, in wedding services. Uh, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. And obviously, the Protestant tradition at large, as well as the Roman Catholic tradition, does not believe that's what Jesus is saying because we believe that you can and at appropriate times should take an oath. Uh, but we're saying what Jesus is saying here is don't let whether you take an oath or not uh, determine whether you feel bound by your obligation to keep your promises or don't let that determine whether you are bound to tell the truth in a certain circumstance. He's saying always let your yes be yes, let your no be no. Not only stick to what you say, but be clear in what you say. And so often we try to deceive people by wording something in such a way that it's not obvious to the hearer that we really don't mean what we're saying. But later on when you really parse all the verbs and you conjugate all the nouns, you can realize, well, you know what? He didn't precisely say that he was going to do that. And we, we, we become experts at wording things so that they have double meanings, a meaning that we can get away with and a meaning that our customer thinks we mean. And so one who is speaking truthfully and lovingly is one who speaks representing reality as it really is and speaks in a way that's clear so that we want our hearer to understand what we mean and so that we're disclosing what is in the interest of the person with whom we're dealing and then after we make a deal, we keep it. That's what the man of God does and that's what Jesus is talking about. Rather than getting into the, the, the details of uh, whether you're bound by your oath or not, why don't we just ask you, are you bound by your own word or not? And a man of integrity is always a man of his word. And I know, I know some of you here have paid a great price because you said something and then you stuck by your word and sometimes it costs you a lot of money to stick by your word. But the psalmist says that uh, the one who has clean hands and a pure heart is the one who uh, keeps his word even when it hurts. And uh, that's what we do. And then certainly when we do take an oath, whether it's a baptismal vow or a church membership vow or ordination vow or a marriage vow, whatever our vow is, uh, we realize that we are bound by these things. Solomon says you're better off not to take a vow than to take one rashly. And you'll find also in Paul's writings, as I mentioned here in Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 25, you see there that every word that comes out of our mouth is to be a wholesome word. And every word that we speak, we're to speak the truth in love. And that's what really uh, changes the world is when men will stand up to what they say they're going to do. Well, that's another illustration of how our righteousness is to be greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. They would adhere to all their meticulous laws about exactly how you swore and exactly what you're obligated to. But the one who has the righteousness of Christ in his own heart is one who knows what the intent was, and he knows what he said, and he sticks by his word. Let your righteousness exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. It's another example of how we really keep the Ten Commandments. We keep them from the heart out. We don't just look at our outward behavior. We look at where our hearts are, and Jesus was illustrating that with that point. Well, with that, let's turn now to chapter 6. And what happens is, um, you know, that the... the 
six comparisons we've been dealing with in chapter 5 are really illustrations of verse 20, what I was just quoting. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And those six comparisons were illustrating what we call, or what Stott calls in his commentary, if you read it, the moral righteousness of the believer. What is our moral life like? Well, it's a life that works from the inside out, it's, uh, and it has all kinds of practical implications. And we adhere to the Ten Commandments not only in our words and our deeds, but even in our intentions. That's our moral righteousness. But now when you turn to chapter 6, you can even tell from the first three headings in chapter 6 that he's talking about uh, what Stott calls religious righteousness. So we've been talking about our practical moral righteousness, but now he's saying the follower of Christ, the one who really takes God seriously and takes the cross seriously, is a person whose religious life is transformed. Now, we all have religious lives. Whether you're a believer or not this morning, you have a religious life. You have certain rituals. You have certain ultimate values. You have ways in which you bow down before the things that you value. Everybody does that. And so do those who adhere to the Scriptures. We have religious practices. And Jesus now is going to talk about our righteousness in those religious practices. And you'll see from chapter 6, even the paragraph headings, that this includes our giving to the needy, or what we used to call alms, A-L-M-S, our prayers, and this is the section where we get the Lord's Prayer. We'll discuss that next time. And then our fasting. So alms, prayer, and fasting. And what's interesting is that uh, in several religions, you'll find these same things there as part of the religious practice of those adherents. For example, uh, in the five pillars of Islam, you know, the five pillars, that in those five basic activities of a Muslim, you'll find giving alms uh, to the poor, uh, you'll find prayer or fasting during Ramadan, and, and you'll also find praying. And so it's, it's not really something that's unique only to Christians. Certainly in Judaism, this was fundamental. This was part of their religious practice, was their almsgiving, their prayer, and their fasting. Now what we're going to see is, just as Jesus transforms the way that we look at the law, and we saw that in chapter 5, that when you follow Christ, it's, it's a, a radical transformation of the way you look at God's revealed law and put it into practice, so also there is a transformation in the way that we look at our religious practice. Well, let's read the first four verses, Matthew 6, 1 through 4. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Okay, let's notice uh, in this text, uh, first of all, that... We do not practice our piety to impress men. We do not practice, do not practice your piety to impress 
men. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. Now, verse 1 serves the same purpose as verse 20 in chapter 5. It's the heading for verses 1 through 18. We're now going to talk about religious practice and not practicing it in order to impress men. Now, before we look at the whole essence of hypocrisy this morning, I want us to back off just a minute and realize that here Jesus is certainly not discouraging the giving of alms. Because, for example, when we were studying Deuteronomy uh, in here before, uh, we found that God gives rules for us to give to the poor. One of the tithes was a tithe for the poor. Every third year we were to collect a special tithe to have funds and resources to distribute to the poor uh, among God's people. And we too are commanded by the Lord to have a special eye, special care for the poor. Uh, Now, some would debate uh, how that affects public policy in the state, and that could be debated here. It would be nice sometimes to have a nice little debate on that. Uh, And there would be many different opinions. But whether it's done through the state or through private agencies or through the church itself, uh, the follower of Jesus Christ must have a special eye for the poor and must know them, love them, and care for them and give of our resources to them. You know that in Israel there was the, the law of leaving the sheaves around the outside of the field, that you were not to glean the entire field. You were to leave something extra for people to come and glean from your field. You owned it. You sowed that seed. You worked that field. You put the money in. It seems like from every from every angle of, uh, uh, of justice, that belongs to you. But God says, here's real justice, that you care for the poor. And so real justice is not just this for that. It's not just you getting what you work for. No, real justice is loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And so there were always laws for Israel. And I think there's still a law for the church. We are to be the experts on the poor. We are to be the advocates for the poor. Now, depending upon which political party you belong to, you may approach it one way or another. But uh, if, if you're one who finds yourself opposing uh, certain uh, acts or uh, uh, funding certain programs uh, by the government, then you ought to be the one who's the loudest to find, give us another answer. If you don't want the government to do it, what's your answer? What are you doing to see that that answer is implemented? Uh, So uh, I'm no expert on public policy, but we're all here Bible students, and we can see in the Bible and Deuteronomy and elsewhere throughout the Scriptures that God loves and cares for the poor, and he expects his people to do so too. So let's not think for, for a moment that Jesus is in any way undermining our giving to the poor. Uh, And I want to ask you this morning, when you look at your own giving, uh, those of you who belong to churches, I assume you're giving to church. Uh, I assume you're giving to agencies and other works in this city that do good things. But what about just looking out for the poor and finding ways to get resources in the hands of the poor? Do you have a strategy for caring for the poor? Uh, One of the things I'm grateful for and in our church here is that our our local missions committees have, uh, uh, as they partner with agencies in the city, they especially look for agencies that work with the poor. 
I would guess that 90% of what this church does in Memphis is primarily focused upon ministry to the poor. Uh, This is our sacred obligation, and let's be sure that we pick it up. So Jesus is not talking about whether here about uh, giving us any excuse for not being involved with the poor. What he's talking about is how we do it, Uh, but he certainly supports and encourages us to do this. This is real religion, says James, that we would care for the widow and for the orphan. We would care for the poor, the marginalized, the vulnerable. Uh, So um, there's no question about that. Now, what the question is, is whether we're doing it uh, for uh, God's glory or whether we're doing it for our glory. I'll leave your finger there in Matthew 6 and turn over to Matthew 13. And here we'll see uh, a chapter in the Bible. I'm sorry, not 13, I mean 23. A chapter in the Bible, chapter 23, where we see Jesus really taking out against this whole idea of hypocrisy. He says, uh, chapter 23, Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Uh, So practice whatever they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds, same word here, to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And and call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. You find the word hypocrite there over and over again in that chapter. We won't read on. But you see what Jesus is concerned about, that when we engage our religious practices, whether it's prayer, even private study of the Bible, or here, giving, our giving, it is to be uh, not done for the pleasure of men, but for the pleasure of God. Now, let's take a little side road here, because if you look back in Matthew 5.16, we're given a verse that seems to contradict what we're saying here. He says in Matthew 5.16, in the same way, Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So Matthew 5.16, Jesus seems to be saying, let people see your good works. Uh, And here he seems to be saying, uh, do not uh, uh, perform acts of righteousness to be seen by them. For then you'll have no reward in heaven. You say, where is the answer? Well, I want us to notice First of all, that in Matthew 5.16, Jesus is talking about our whole moral character, everything about us. And later on, of course, uh, after verses 17 through 20, he talks about our keeping the law and the way that we implement it in our lives. And he's saying, live your life before other people. Live it openly as a follower of Jesus Christ. 
and obey him in your moral behavior. When you do then, people will glorify God. Now in the case of chapter 6 verse 1, what he's talking about here is our religious duties. And so we don't, as opposed to our moral character, which is displayed before all people, in our religious duties, particularly here, giving to the poor, we don't advertise it to other people. And you also see that the real goal here is to glorify God and not the self. And the problem with giving as the Pharisees gave, they glorified themselves. Matthew 5.16, if you live your life in open, following Christ, obeying His Word, others will see your good works and give glory to God. But when you are advertising what you give to the poor, you're not bringing glory to God, you're bringing glory to yourself. And that's the real point here. Now, this word hypocrite, you'll also find in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7, verse 5. Uh, you find it, as I said, six times in chapter 23. You see it in many other places. And the word hypocrite, of course, uh, is basically the word for actor. And Jesus is saying, don't be an actor. That's what he's talking about here. An actor enters a role. An actor is playing a part. An actor is going through the motions. An actor is not really that person. And sometimes people need to be reminded of that. These big actors uh, on the screen, and we get so involved in their lives and obsessed with their personalities. They're just actors. They're just play acting. When they go home, they're just as hard to deal with as you are. And Jesus said, what you don't want to be is someone who's just playing a part, acting out, making appearances before other people. No, you want to live real life from the heart out. And that's the problem with one who's boasting about his giving, looking for the pleasure of men, is that they are acting. And, of course, in Greek plays, uh, what a hypocrite, an actor would do, is he would, when he plays a part, he would take a mask. That's the way they did it. And if you're a happy figure, you'd have a big smile on your mask. If you're a sad figure, you'd frown on your mask. And you wear the mask, depending upon what your role is. And that's what a hypocrite is. Just puts a mask on. And Jesus says, let's cut through the baloney. Let's cut through hypocrisy. In fact, when Jesus describes the, the uh, scribes and Pharisees, he just calls them a bunch of hypocrites. In Luke 12, verse 1, we are told that uh, in the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they, were being, that they were trampling one another, Jesus began to say to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now let's look at hypocrisy for just a moment. I want, to, want us to notice, if we were to survey what Jesus says about it when he's excoriating the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23 and other places, we would see this. Number one, hypocrisy blinds us. When we are play-acting, when, when our Christian religion is just a role that we're entering, when our religious practices are primarily so that everybody else notices and gives us credit for it, what it does, it blinds us to the needs of other people. It blinds us to the glory of God. It blinds us to our own need for a Savior. It blinds us to our own sin. Uh, you'll, you'll find, for example, in Matthew chapter 7, if you'll just look there for a moment, he, he says, 
Uh, judge not that you be not judged, verse 1. For with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. So when, when we are hypocritical, we can see the fine print in how somebody else screwed up. But what you can't see is the massive uh, unrighteousness in your own life. It's amazing how hypocrisy works. When you get into play acting, you can't even see yourself anymore. You don't even know how to confess your sins because you've trained yourself so long not to look at them and hoping that nobody else notices them that you're now blind to the log in your own eye. Secondly, hypocrisy corrupts us. What happens when you begin living your life for image management purposes, when you begin to live your life and exercising your religious practices so that others will notice what you're doing, it corrupts your entire heart. This is what has Jesus concerned here, that we can go through certain motions like prayer or fasting or actually giving. And all it's doing is just corrupting us, just making us worse all the time. And so instead of giving increasing glory to God, we just increasingly become very proud of ourselves. It's a very corrupting influence, hypocrisy is. And thirdly, it disables us. But, and, and once again, if you go back to chapter 7, he says, Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, says Jesus, verse 5 of chapter 7. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now we all know how a speck in our eye can be very painful. Very painful if you get something in your eye. It's nice to have somebody help you get it out. But if they have a log in their eye, they can't help you get the speck out of your eye. So if you're a hypocrite and you're going through your religious motions hoping that others will think well of you, you can't help anybody else with their sincere worship of God either. You can't see the speck. You can't help them get the speck out of their eye. You can't help correct them. You really can't encourage them very much. Hypocrisy spawns greater hypocrisy. That's what happens. Our hypocrisy spawns greater hypocrisy. Now, we all know when it comes to hypocrisy, it's one of the greatest uh, criticisms of the church. Of course, I always tell people when they say, I don't want to go to church and be with a bunch of hypocrites, I say, well, look, just come on and and join us. And You're one of us. You'll fit right in. And you see what happens. A hypocrite will condemn other hypocrites. Look at the corruption. Here's a person who's not giving God his glory by worshiping him and his people. Here's a person who thinks they're not a hypocrite. They're morally superior to those other people. You see the hypocrisy in that? Do you see the hypocrisy for not associating with those people because they're hypocrites? I mean, talk about irony. That's what hypocrisy does to you. And you can be a hypocrite and be the worst criminal. I mean, if you go to the jail, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. Just like when you go to church, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Everybody's got this hypocritical nature, and the more it comes out undisciplined, the more it just creates hypocrisy all around us. It completely disables us. So the only way in which we can be helpful to the poor, the only way we can be helpful to each other, the only way in which we can really honor and worship God is by dealing with our hypocrisy. Now let's notice uh, under this whole idea of practicing our piety not to impress men, that if, if we do... 
we will not have God's reward. Because he says, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Now, Matthew, we must notice, is not shy about God's reward. Uh, In this chapter alone, you see it mentioned uh, at least three times, God's reward. You'll see rewards mentioned uh, in chapter 10, chapter 20, chapter 24, chapter 25, uh, that God speaks about those being rewarded. For example, in chapter 25, who's he rewarding? Those who clothed him and fed him and took and gave him uh, a cup of cold water. And they said, well, where were you? He said, well, I, I was, you know, in, in as much as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. And so he is rewarding people's behavior. And we will not have God's reward if we're looking for man's reward. You cannot have them both. I'll leave your finger there with, and turn with me to John chapter 5. Uh, it's three books over. And in John 5, you'll see that Jesus addresses this clearly in his comments here. John five forty four. He says to his disciples and to all those around, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You see what Jesus is saying? You cannot have it both ways. If in your giving you are seeking the credit and the approbation that comes from that giving, then you must realize that you're not going to be giving, get, receiving uh, the praise uh, or not be giving the praise that goes to God. If you're bringing praise to yourself, then you're not going to be able to give praise to God for it. So you will not have God's reward. Secondly, you will have the hypocrite's reward. He says thus, this is verse 2, when you give to the needy, Sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And the word that's used there uh, just means they're paid in full. That if I go to church and and I say, <laughs> here's the way, this, and it sounds ridiculous to us, but when you had a wealthy person uh, who was a Pharisee, he was getting ready to make his gift. He obviously, his gift was going to be so much more important than 50 other people's gifts combined. Then the people, of course, would cooperate. They were glad to have this man's money uh, into their coffers. And so they would bring the trumpeters out and they would have a nice procession. And the rich man would come in in a nice procession and present his sacrificial gift to the Lord. <laughs> and Jesus said, Hey, this man was rewarded because all these people saw this parade and heard the trumpets blowing. All these people said, oh, he may be a wealthy man, but I tell you, he's a very generous man. And he got his reward. And it's like you get in a bill paid in full. The debt is owed. And what Jesus is saying is he's paid in full and there's nothing more that he's going to receive. He's been rewarded. And so it has, there's going to be nothing coming from God. And God rewards in a peculiar way, as we'll discuss, but they're going to get none of that. They'll get only man's reward. And so often, you know, when you slip up 
and you brag about a gift you made, you can just say, got my reward right there. That's it. It's over. Nothing after that. So you will have the hypocrite's reward. Now, uh, tragically, one of the greatest cases of hypocrisy is in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And you'll just, uh, you don't need to turn there unless you want to, but you remember that Barnabas had given a gift out of his own heart. He had sold property, his property and laid the proceeds at the apostles' feet to carry out the mission of the church. And I'm sure, I'm sure that the people were saying, not that Barnabas intended this, but the people were saying, oh, what a great man Barnabas is. Well, Ananias and Sapphira overheard that, and they wanted a little bit of that approbation for themselves. So they let it be known that they sold their property too. And they gave all the proceeds to the mission of Christ too. Well, the fact is they lied. They didn't give all the proceeds. So the apostles called them in, and they were struck dead, both of them, uh, uh, Ananias and Sapphira in order. They, they, they even lied before the church. So God's judgment, there, there's the ultimately the hypocrite's award, reward is God's judgment. So we get the approbation of men, but, but God struck them dead in worship because they were lying, and it really is a lie. The problem with hypocrisy is you're lying. You're presenting something to us about yourself, and it's not real. It's not true. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't take a shower and shave in the morning. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you shouldn't put your best foot forward. It doesn't mean that when you're selling your product, you don't tell your customer about all the benefits of your product. No, but what it means is that we don't misrepresent. We clean up, and we seek to do good, but we don't misrepresent ourselves, and especially do we not misrepresent ourselves for the purpose of receiving approbation from men. Well, that's the, those are the first two verses that we do not practice our piety to impress men. Secondly, we do practice our giving to please God. We do practice our giving to please God. Now we're going to talk specifically about giving and pleasing God. Now, first of all, Let's just talk about giving for a few moments. It does please God that we give. Once again, just as Jesus is not saying that we don't care for the poor, He's just saying don't care for the poor and use them to promote your own reputation with other people. That's using the poor. That's not serving the poor. So Jesus is not undermining our care for the poor and neither is He undermining our giving. It pleases Him when we give things away, when we're being generous, whether other people know about it or they don't know about it. It pleases God when we give. So we should be a giving people. Secondly, the Bible teaches us to give in certain particular ways. And let me mention just about eight of them here that come from the Bible, just as reminders to us. Because it's uh, important for us, I think, in Jesus' teaching, this may be the, the main place where we talk about giving for a few moments. So let's do it. First of all, the Bible teaches us to give systematically. To give systematically. In Malachi, we are taught to bring our tithes. Tithe means 10%. Bring our tithes into the storehouse. So first of all, there's a set number that's associated with that, 10%. Secondly, there's a set place to bring it. The storehouse was a room within the temple 
And, of course, Paul tells us in a number of places, just as Peter does, that we're the temple, so the church is the temple. So if we're bringing the, we bring 10% of our earned income into the church of Christ. That's very systematic giving. You see the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, where Paul reminds them to save up their gifts. He's going to collect the gift and take it to Jerusalem for the poor in the mother church there. So they were very systematic in the way that they gave. And I just want to ask you, do you plan your giving carefully? Whether you have a lot of money or not very much money, do you plan it? Uh, About this time of the year, uh, every year, I I try to plan the next year. Now, in my case, of course, my income is predictable. Some of you have unpredictable incomes. But there are other ways in which you plan systematically when you don't have predictable incomes. You take, for example, your floor income, kind of what you think is you're not going to go below, and you can give regularly, every week, systematically, based on that floor income. And then some of you have upside opportunities and good bumper crop years. Well, as that comes in, you give on, on that as it comes in. But you plan your giving as much as you can. Uh, those of you who have, you know, you're on, on tight budgets, then rather than responding to appeals that come to you in the mail that you really hadn't thought about, and there's nothing wrong with appeals through the mail, but rather than just giving reactively to whoever asks, take what you think your giving capacity ought to be next year and plan now to give. In other words, compare giving to this versus giving to that. Now, you've heard me already say, a tithe into the storehouse but we live in the richest nation in the history of the world. So we should be giving more than a tithe. So you start with a tithe. Bring 10% into into the church to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ who is the head of the church. But then we've got all kinds of concerns in this city and people here in this room who are heading efforts to do all kinds of things in our city. And there's no reason why people who are living in the richest country of the world couldn't give 20% or 30%. Give more than 10%. And then strategically ask yourselves, now, where does this need to go? What are the basic concerns that that would concern the Lord in our city? If you live in Memphis, it's a wonderful thing. You can can do most of your giving right here. Got plenty of things you can give to. And if you run out of things in your mind, give me an email. I'll give you some suggestions. But there are all kinds of ways to give. Plan it. Plan ahead. And then when you get some phone call from someone you don't really know asking you to give to this fund or that fund, say, you know, you can send me a written request on that and I'll consider it for next year. I mean, seriously, that's what I do. If someone calls and asks me for an immediate gift, well, unless it's one of our kids in our church who are going on the mission field, and that brings me to the next point, create in your giving strategies a special fund for unexpected requests. Plan for it. So it's not unexpected. I mean, you expect to have unexpected requests. And one of those would be when, if you're in a Second Presbyterian church, when you get a request from one of our kids going for a short-term mission trip, the answer is yes. Uh, the only thing is you haven't figured out maybe how much, but the answer is yes because you want to get about our, behind our own kids who are getting involved in mission. So plan systematically giving. Uh, and I tell you, that it's kind of like making a date with your wife. If you'll make the date today for Friday night, she's thinking about it all day today and all day tomorrow. And you get more credit for it that way. And, <laughs> and I suggest it's the same way with giving. Plan it. And then I, 
you know, I enjoy the giving even before I have the money to give away. I'm already, I'm already enjoying investing in things that I haven't even put, put next year's money into yet because I've planned it. There's more joy when you plan systematically, and I think the Bible teaches that Old Testament and New. Secondly, the Bible teaches us to give sacrificially. And, of course, back to Malachi in chapter 1 where we're told to bring our unblemished lambs. Don't bring us your blemished lambs. Don't bring us, uh, says, says God, don't, don't bring God the one that you didn't need anyway. Uh, don't wait until the end of the year and see what you can get along without. No, the tithe is the first 10%. It's the first check you write. It's the first commitment you make. And your giving is your first commitment. So you, you basically are taking that out first and then you're living on the rest and you do it sacrificially. If, if you don't give until it feels good, then it's probably not giving sacrificially. And by feeling good, I mean hurting. If it doesn't, if there's not a, a car that whose, whose purchase you postpone or a vacation you downscale or some other sacrifice you're making in the way that you're living your life, your giving probably is not sacrificial. And also in Luke 21, you know how Jesus uh, thought about giving. Uh, he had these rich people coming in at the sound of trumpets to make their gift in the synagogue, but he had this little woman who gave two mites. He said, now there's the one who really gave generously. She gave all that she had. She gave sacrificially. And gentlemen, this is not liturgical hocus pocus. This, this is the way God really looks at it. He really takes more delight in the sacrificial gift of, of the poor person than he does the large gift that builds buildings of the rich person when they haven't uh, given from their heart and they really haven't given sacrificially. God takes delight in sacrificial giving and you can tell because that's the way he gave. When he gave, he gave his only begotten son. It cost him everything. Thirdly, we're to give cheerfully. Once again, back to Malachi chapter 1. He says, you hold the altar of God in contempt. You sniff at it. You, you, you resent it when you give your gifts, he says to them. And he, he goes on to say, I wish you would just shut the temple doors and lock them and not let anybody in here to worship me. To worship me as though I'm a drudgery is worse than not worshiping me at all, he's saying. And the same way with giving is if we give begrudgingly. If we don't enjoy it, it's not real Christian giving. So gentlemen, you must give sacrificially and you must enjoy it. That's the way it is. You must give it cheerfully. Uh, God loves, as Paul says, God loves a cheerful giver. He takes great delight in someone who gives sacrificially with a big smile on their hearts. Fourthly, we're to give proportionately. And once again, the tithe, you see, is proportional. It's 10% of your income. And it's a different number for every person. The poor person's not to be giving what the rich person gives. And of course, the rich person can give far more than 10%. But the law of God in the Old Testament was proportional. And just as Paul says in in. Uh, Second Corinthians, he says, don't give what you don't have, just give what you have. And God takes delight in it. And don't compare yourself to someone else. Fifthly, give generously. 
The Proverbs have a lot to say about the generous giver, and so does Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. If we sow generously, we reap generously. It's really true. It's an amazing thing. You would think that you divest yourself, you get rid of stuff, you're not going to have those blessings anymore. And you find it over and over again when you divest yourself and you give up stuff, God, you, you reap all kinds of benefits. It's hard to describe. Not necessarily material benefits, although I've seen God do that. But it's reaping all the spiritual blessings that are in the heavenly realms. We reap generously. Sixthly, we must give worshipfully. That is, when we give, we're ultimately giving it for God's glory. We give with a sense of reverence and awe, and we give with a sense of His ultimately being the object of our giving. Even if I help the poor and give a gift directly to them that's non-tax deductible, and you know, you can do that. It's not against the Christian law. You can give something that's not non-taxable, uh, tax deductible. Uh, so... Uh, even when you give something directly to the poor, ultimately you're giving it for the glory of God. You've got Him on your mind all the time and you're giving worshipfully. That's the reason that I suggest in your giving the tithe, especially the tithe, be sure that you actually bring it into the church in worship to the best of your ability. Now, we, like other churches, uh, have you, know, you, can, you can email in your gift and give your, your bank number or... Yeah, I don't think we do credit cards here, but some churches do. But I always suggest, I know it's antiquarian, gentlemen, actually to write a check. I mean, some of my friends who are 35 and younger, they don't even have checking accounts. They don't even know what that is. Uh, I understand that. But if I had no other reason to have a checking account but to make my offering on a Sunday morning, I would have a checking account. And the reason is, and, and this is, you know, this is not chapter and verse in the Bible. This is Sandy Wilson speculating. But if I just think about what it means to give to God, I want to give my gift in the midst of worship. It's one of those tangible moments. It's like using my voice in praise. I want to get, use my voice, whether I can sing on key or not. I'm going to lift it up because I give Him something tangible from my life in worship. And the same way with your giving the tithe, you bring it to the feet of Jesus Christ so that he would be honored and glorified. How are you going to do that except giving it in his body, which is the church, so that he, the head, is glorified? That's one of the great privileges of giving gifts in worship. So however you give it, give it from the heart in worship to him, whether it's the tithe or it's gifts beyond the tithe, whether it's alms to the poor. Seventhly, give freely, not under compulsion. It was so important in the building of the tabernacle in Exodus 35 that every one of those gifts be given freely and from the heart. Because you hear Moses saying over and over again, all those who were willing brought their gifts. No gifts manipulated. And I tell you what, in some of our churches when we have our capital campaigns, we're trying to raise a lot of money for buildings. So often I find churches who cross the line, they start manipulating people. And uh, they start telling everybody what they're giving so that others will give as well. And I think that this is probably in violation of what the Lord is saying. And then, eighthly, give expectantly. Uh, in Malachi, once again, for example, um, 
God says, test me in this. Bring the tithes in the storehouse and see if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing upon you you cannot contain it. Just check me out. And so when you give alms to the poor for the glory of God, expect something from him. Matthew's not embarrassed or shy to expect the Lord to reward him in this life, not necessarily with more money. You don't give your gift hoping that God will give you more money. If you turn on the TV set, you'll see program after program where people say, you send your money into us and boy, you'll have more money in your bank account than you can ever imagine. That's a bunch of hooey. Uh, and that's very carnal. And that's trying to manipulate God. That's not worshipful giving. Now, worshipful giving is you give it to, to God. You trust him to take care of you in whatever way he wants to take care of you. But you expect him to do that. Now, notice in this, in verse 3, first of all, we do not congratulate ourselves. Do not congratulate yourself. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Talk about giving without getting credit. You don't even know what you're doing half the time. Your left hand does not know what your right hand is doing. And uh, that's kind of an extreme example of how we must not only seek, not seek the approbation, the credit from other people, we're not even seeking credit from ourselves. Boy, look how deep the law of God works. He's saying even when you're sitting behind your desk writing out these checks, when you're preparing your giving, or when you walk away from the poor person that you just helped, be very careful that you're not taking such delight in your own generosity because you're such a wonderful person. Watch out. And, you know, I I was reading this and I realized, you know, I do go back and I keep records of what I give and I'm thinking, should I keep those records? I'm not sure about this. Uh, Because if it leads us to look back and think, well, you know, I've given X amount in my life. Uh, mm Mm-mm. Boy, watch out. Do not congratulate yourself. And I would have to say that, let me make a point here because I know some of us are wondering about this. You you know, uh, in several organizations where you'll give, uh, especially educational groups do this, when they acknowledge their donors, they publish your name, right? So if I give to a a school or a university, uh, I kind of expect, you know, once a year, that report's going to come back and show all the alumni and who gave. And in recent years, you've noticed, they not only say who gave, but they put us in nice little categories. Oh, they, don't, they wouldn't be so crass as to put the exact dollar amount next to your name. They just put you in categories where you're going to figure out how much you gave, right? Uh, and we kind of like it that way. Uh, men like it. It's a little bit competitive, and you can kind of figure out which group do I want to belong to. And what did I wonder what Bob gave? I'll see. I'll see. Oh, I gave more than Bob. I'm in good shape. Uh, and so you wonder: Is this what Jesus is talking about? Uh, not giving so that others will reward us. I, I think maybe it is. However, uh, notice that uh, he's talking about giving to the poor. And if you're talking about the tithe, you're talking about something else. We don't publish any lists here at the church. And as far as I'm, I'm concerned, if I have anything to do, as long as I'm alive, we'll never have any lists. I don't, I don't know what people give, personally. Don't want to know. And I want you to know that I don't know. So you're not even tempted to think 
that you can influence anybody in the church except our bookkeeper. <laughs> if you want to influence her, she's the one who knows what you give. And so you're all influencing her. She all thinks something. She thinks something about every one of you. I don't know. Uh, no, not really. But that's the only person you're going to influence is the person in the, in the back corner over there. Nobody else knows. Why? These are gifts to the Lord. And we do not want to tempt in any way. You're looking for credit for your gift to the Lord. Now, when I give my gifts to organizations and I end up on their list, I just say, oh, there's my reward. <laughs> you know, people know that I give. And it'll maybe encourage some other people to give. That's, that's fine for organizations that are not the church. I don't think it's fine for the church. I know some churches that have, uh, that these days here recently, I've noticed it around the country, some churches now will actually have little dinners for their major donors. I think that's frankly from the pit of hell. I think you're, you're, you're playing into what James said you should not do. You should not show any deference for the rich. And most of the people who give big gifts are rich people. Poor people can't give big gifts. So you're carving out your major donors and you're going to tell them a big thank you. So the senior minister is going to do that. So the senior minister is going to say thank you for your big gifts to the church. You've all been, and you can, it'll be a nice speech. You, you, you know, you're all devoted and it's so wonderful to be on your team and la 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 la, baloney, baloney, baloney. And we, we tell each other and reward each other for our giving to the Lord. And I don't care what you say, you're basically giving people credit for something that wasn't supposed to be credited to them. It's supposed to be credited to the Lord and it was to be done in secret. And I think we must be very careful to keep those things in secret when we're giving to the Lord. If I'm giving to some non-church entity, I'm not going to argue with that. I think that our culture sometimes uh, will determine the ways in which we do that. But when we give our gifts to the Lord and give them to the poor, we give them in secret. Because lastly, if you look here, we seek God's reward. And I've given you a bunch of verses there to show you that God does reward. Now, he rewards in some ways in this life every spiritual blessing from the heavenly realms. But ultimately, gentlemen, he's going to reward in the next life. You're not giving anything to him that's not going to come back to you hundredfold. When you get to the new heavens and the new earth, you'll be amazed at how he never forgot anything you did. So you don't have to keep records of how well you're doing. You don't have to let other people know how well you're doing. He knows what you're doing. He takes delight in it from your heart to his heart. And he will reward you. That's the way that in our giving, our religious giving, that's the way that we give in a way that pleases the Lord. Let us pray. Father, thank you for giving us the privilege of giving, whether we're rich or poor, and we pray that you'll help us to do it in secret, knowing that our Father who is in secret will reward us mightily. We make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.